I'm just going to take a moment to pray. I invite you to pray with me. God, we are a people that are in process. God, our sincere desire is to grow in you, to grow in maturity. And a lot of times, that growth is predicated on us recognizing areas of struggle, of weakness, that um, we do have to be vulnerable before you and before other people and say, I need help with this. This is a place where I'm stuck. This is pain that I've intentionally ignored. These are things that I'm hiding from myself. I'm wanting to believe they're not a big deal, but they're manifesting in my life in all kinds of negative ways. and They're interfering in my relationship with you and other people and my vocation in the world. God, help this church to be a place where we can be vulnerable with one another. That we don't need to pretend like we have it all together, but that we are submitting to you and by your power, we are learning to be healed and restored in you. Help this to be a hospital for sinners and not a museum for plastic saints. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go back into a scripture that I started teaching on last week, but I'm tagging on two extra verses because there's just a lot here and it's really, really interesting and oh, it's really convicting. This is a, this is an intense message just right out of the gate. I got to let you know that. This is a Put on the Holy Spirit Kevlar. Get, get your seatbelt on. This is, um, this is going to be intense. And you might not presume that from the passage because it doesn't seem particularly jarring when you read through it. Let's read through it together. Mark 14, verses 1 to 11. We're going to go all the way to 11 this week. Mark 14, 1 to 11. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law we're looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear this. And they promised to give him money. And so he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. This is a story that on its surface is a story about a group of people, the disciples and other people in the room, who see a woman's action as extremely wasteful. And it's a pretty clever plot device because as Mark's gospel unfolds, as we get closer and closer to Jesus' crucifixion, 
if you're trying to read, if you're imagining what it would be like to read, have this gospel read to you or to hear this gospel for the first time, at this point in the story, what you're wondering is, where is this story going? Jesus' life and ministry has built amazing momentum for three years, but there have also been dark clouds kind of gathering around him, forces conspiring to keep him down and ultimately to kill him. And this is something that even Jesus has been alluding to along the way. He's been saying things like he's going to die and raise from the dead, and everyone's like, what? There's just not a, there's not a paradigm for that. For anybody that he talks to, he, he's, he's speaking cryptically. Is it, it's symbolic of something. And so Mark is leading us into the question, in these final few days of Jesus' life, are we going to discover that all of this has been for a waste? It's all just been for nothing. Just like this woman's perfume was poured out over Jesus and everyone looks and says, oh, what a waste. That had so much potential to help so many people and now it's wasted. Is that what's going to happen to Jesus? This king who comes into Jerusalem, is he going to be crowned or is he going to be defeated and crushed by Rome, by the religious leaders who are trying to stop him and silence him? Now, I extended this passage into verse 10 and 11 this week because there's an intentional contrast being highlighted that isn't always easy to see at first pass, but I want to kind of tease it out for you. Certainly the major theme, or one of them, of of Mark 1 to 11 is what does it mean to waste your life? Here's a woman who, by all accounts, has wasted this incredibly valuable thing. You pull back 30,000 feet, what does it look like to waste your life? In Mark 4, sorry, Mark 14, 4 and verse 4, these people, some of those present, said indignantly, why this waste of perfume? And the Greek word for waste is apolia. Apolia is the Greek word for waste. And it shows up a few times in the New Testament, but it's not always translated as waste because it has a dual meaning I mean, in function, kind of ends up in the same place, but it has a slightly um, kind of two sides of a, of a nuanced coin. It can either be translated as waste. It can also be translated as destruction. And about 60% of the time, translators will translate it as destruction. It's the same word, apolia, but it's translated either waste or destruction depending on the context, and translators have to do this tricky thing of saying, how do I best capture the meaning behind this really powerful word? But it kind of has this idea that something that had potential now comes to naught. And it's been wasted, it's been thrown away, it's been robbed and destroyed of all its potential. Jesus uses the word in Matthew 7 when he says, enter through the narrow gate, For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to waste. Apollia, destruction. Small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The road to a wasted life is really large, and a lot of people walk down that road. But the road that leads to life is very narrow. Only a few find it. Second Peter 2.1, Peter writing to an early group of Christians, he says, but there, was also among false pro- there were also false prop- prophets among the people, just as there will be prof- uh, false teachers among you. 
And these false teachers are secretly going to introduce destructive heresies. That's a fancy word for false teachings. Uh, They're going to even deny the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves, bringing swift waste, apolia, upon themselves. Again, from 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 at this time. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God had given him. And then Peter, is, when he says he, he's referring to Paul. He, Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking, them, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do other scriptures, to their own apolia, to their own waste or to their own destruction. So this happens a few times in the New Testament, but note, a little bit of comfort for those of you who sometimes find reading parts of the Bible, especially the writings of the Apostle Paul, absolutely inspired, but God used the fingerprint of Paul's voice to shape the teachings of the early church. Even Peter, one of the apostles, is like, I've read Paul's letters. They are not easy to understand. <laughs> so if you're reading this stuff, you're going through Romans, reading some of his letters, and you're like, wow, this is complicated and weird. And what's he getting at? Peter's like, it, it's, it's the word of God, but this, is, uh, this isn't kind of a, this is advanced studies in theology. So don't be discouraged. One of the apostles of Jesus himself said, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. So this word apolia shows up consistently in the New Testament, could be translated waste, could be translated as destruction. So let's continue in the passage, Mark 14, 10 to 11. Then Judas Iscariot, after this exchange about waste and is this woman wasting this perfume and by implication her life, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this. They promised to give him money. And so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. In John chapter 12, in John's gospel, we get a little bit more of the story. We actually find out, Mark says some of the people there asked, why is this woman wasting this perfume? In John's gospel, John highlights the fact that it's Judas who's giving voice to what other people in the room are really uh, disturbed about. In John 12, verses four to six, it says, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. So Judas in John's gospel is the one who, maybe other people are saying it, murmuring it, but who's gonna like step out and say, I, I gotta call you on this, Jesus. This is not a good thing. And it's Judas. But then in John's gospel, John notes, Judas didn't, didn't say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So we get this window into Judas's heart, which wasn't about the poor at all. That was just an ancient version of virtue signaling. <gasps> what a terrible waste. All that money could have gone to the poor. That would have been my idea, Jesus, just if you, know, if you were asking me. But meanwhile, that's just a front to really uh, allow the money bag to have more money in it, that perfume and then kind of take some stuff off the top for himself. And what we may not see is something that's a really interesting link between Mark 14.4, where they ask, um, why did this woman waste this perfume, Apollia? Why this waste? And Judas Iscariot. But it comes into view 
in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, where we're, get, we're, we're, we're led into a window of Jesus praying in a moment of intimacy to the Father. And Jesus says this. He says, while I was with them, I protected them, meaning the 12, the apostles, and I kept them safe by that name which you gave me. And none has been lost except for the one doomed to waste so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Jesus names Judas as the one who is doomed to destruction in your translation, but again, that's apolia, it's the same word. It's the word waste. And when you have that context and circle back into the passage, you see what Mark is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, look at this woman who from the outside looks like she's wasting her life, And now I want to turn your attention to Judas, the one who's actually wasting his life. In the world's eyes, the woman's act, and by implication her life, is a waste. And Judas, the responsible one, the one who cares about the poor, very religious, very serious, willing to rebuke people who aren't taking God's command to do justice and live righteously. That is the one whose life is doomed to waste. So there's this really challenging, interesting turn in the text that centers around this word, apolia. And now when you go back through that text, in the question, what does it actually look like to waste your life? What does a wasted life look like? I think the passage draws out a number of implications. I'm going to talk about five. Number one of five ways you can waste your life that I see in this passage. Number one is prioritize possessions over people. Possessions over people. That's a surefire way to waste your life. Not that possessions are bad, not necessarily that they're evil, but they are never meant to occupy a place of priority and prominence in our lives. Life is fundamentally about loving God and loving people. Relationship, possessions can be a tool to that end. But when we value and prioritize possessions over people, we are on that broad road of waste and destruction. Paul writes to 1 Timothy in chapter 6. He says, Timothy, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and apolia, waste. You want to get rich? That's a fast track to wasting your life, Timothy. Because the love of money, not money, not wealth per se, but the love of it, the desire to, this is what life is all about, to build your life around it, is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. When we value possessions over people, we are setting ourselves up to waste our life. Number two, we can waste our lives by prioritizing religion over regeneration. This take, I need to explain this a little bit. Religion, I might even say moralism, What I mean by that is you look at the people in this room and there were religious authorities there, people who knew the text, understood it, prayed to God several times a day, considered themselves very godly. They were self-righteous. 
They understood themselves to be righteous. They were very strict with themselves. And there was this woman, and depending on who you believe the woman is, because there's kind of slightly different accounts in the Gospels and different accounts historically, this is a woman who likely had some kind of a reputation. But leaving some of those details aside, what Jesus offers is a chance for a new kind of life, spiritual regeneration by the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the warnings of this passage is that it's actually possible to hold that offer on at, at bay and instead replace it with religion. And by religion here, I mean coming up with your own system whereby you're a good person, you do good things, you uh, try to justify and establish yourself before other people is righteous, before God is righteous. Moralism, we might say. And a lot of people, a lot of people, believe that's the point of Christianity, is to be a good person. So you'll hear this from people, well, I don't need to go to church to be a good person. And I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe not. That's neither here nor there for me. But there's only one person in whom and through whom you can be spiritually regenerated, forgiven and powered to a new kind of life. That new kind of life will and should conform to a new morality of honoring God and loving people. But you can also live in that morality and not have a relationship with Jesus. That's possible to do. And one of the dangerous things that Scripture says is actually you can waste your life focusing on religion and not regeneration. Focusing on the fruits of what it means to be a good person. And I, you know, I, I want to see myself as a good person. I want to do good and I, I don't want to be selfish. But we can actually realize that's not the point of life. The point of life is to be in relationship with the author of life and then those things flow out of that. We can want the fruit without being connected to the root. In John 3, a very sincere, God-fearing, knowledgeable, religious, authority figure named Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, I know you're a teacher from God. You, you, you couldn't do the miraculous signs you're doing if, if you weren't the real deal sort of thing. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. This is someone who had all their religious ducks in a row. And Jesus says, We can enter into this conversation. I need to tell you right up front, though, the kind of life that God has for you, life in the kingdom of God, that doesn't mean getting to go to heaven. That's an outworking of life in the kingdom of God. Life in the kingdom of God means life under the rule and reign of God. Life with God the way it's supposed to be. He says, you can't even get there. You can't even see it. Take hold of it. Unless you're born again. You can't earn your way into it. Just like you didn't you didn't merit or earn your way to being born the first time. It's a gift that you receive. It's a gift of life. And it's only available in me. Number three, you can waste your life by gaining the whole world but losing your soul. Jesus said a pretty famous passage. He said, if anyone would come after me, he needs to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And he asks this question, which is a pretty piercing question. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And soul doesn't mean a little part of us inside, a little boop beam of consciousness. Soul is a word that simply is coming, just coming at the human personhood from an angle of depth and totality. What if you were to win the game of life and get all this stuff and all the things that the world says, this is what you need. These are the accessories that you need in order to be seen as successful and valid and to be justified in the eyes of your neighbors and to be exalted. And Jesus says, what if you gained all that 
but yet you lost who you were meant to be in God. You lost the core of your humanity. You're made as an image bearer, but in gaining the world, you so defaced the image of God in you that it was hardly recognizable. Which of all those toys that you got would you be able to exchange to get that image back? Which of those things would have been worth the exchange to lose a core part of your humanity and who you are and who you were meant to be? What can a man give in exchange for that? Number four, you can waste your life if you prioritize self-exaltation over Christ's exaltation. If you see the point of life as your name, your life, your agenda being high and lifted up and prioritized instead of not my will, but yours be done. Your kingdom come, my kingdom go. That doesn't mean we don't have plans, we don't have goals, but we're always submitting them to God and saying, God, if my plans are ultimately about me, I give you permission to change them, alter them, uh, destroy them, give me, redirect me, so that in all my ways, in all my actions, big or small, I'm learning to lift you up. John Piper says, the unwasted life, so a life that isn't wasted, the unwasted life is one that puts Christ on display as supremely valuable. It's not that Jesus matters and nothing else matters. Lots of things matter. But only when Jesus is celebrated as Lord and King and he's the center, only he has the necessary gravitational center that creates an orbit that all the other priorities in our lives actually cohere and work and flourish together. That's why Jesus said, pagans run after all kinds of things. What am I going to wear? What are we going to eat? What about this? What about five years from now? What's our five-year plan? What's the vision for my life? All this stuff. He says, listen, what, this is what you are going to do. You instead uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all those other things, Jesus doesn't say, they don't matter, don't worry about them. He just says, they, they will find their place. They'll be given to you, but they'll be given to you now with a new kind of spiritual gravitational center. And then instead of destroying your life because they won't become idols, they'll actually help your life work and you'll build momentum. They can be a gift instead of a curse. Philippians 3, this is Paul writing. And he says, whatever I thought was to my profit, all these accumulated advantages that I had, and he lists them in Philippians 3. He says, I consider a loss for the sake of Christ. That's his way of saying all this stuff that other people would look at and say, wow, Paul, you're so awesome. He says, that is nothing compared to knowing Christ and exalting Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. He's not saying that these things don't matter, that our earthly commitments and priorities don't matter. What he's saying is, compared to Jesus, they are like rubbish. I don't treat them like rubbish, but I understand their proper place. I live to serve Jesus and to make his name known as a student, as an employer, as a spouse, as a neighbor. I'm learning to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself. My life is to be done and lived out as a witness to Jesus and his love and truth. And lastly, and I, got, I think you can see here a lot of these kind of overlap and intersect at different points, but lastly, I think this passage shows me that you can waste your life by living a life of consumption versus a life of contribution. 
We live in a society that is very eager to sell us on the message that the more you consume things, maybe even people or relationships, experiences, the more you can take in, the happier you will be. Your life, the correlation between your joy and consumption runs like this. And it's a terrible lie. We experience it as a lie if we're paying attention, but it's, we're bombarded with it so often in so many different ways, you can kind of begin to believe it. Whereas Jesus models and teaches, and our experience of life in God's world, if we're paying attention, teaches, actually, my experience of joy and meaning and fulfillment is correlated to how engaged I am to contributing to the lives of other people in sacrificial ways. It's getting attention off of myself and onto other people. It's moving into the day not saying, I wonder how God's gonna bless me today. God, this is what I need from you today. Me, me, I'm at the center and saying, God, how can I be a blessing today? Yeah, I have needs. I'm gonna lay them before God, but then I'm gonna go out into the world and say, how can I be a blessing like that to other people? How can I love and serve other people? And when you begin to live like that, we enter into an unwasted life. Jesus told this really interesting parable where he said, there's this rich man and his harvest produces a huge crop and he thinks to himself, whoa, what am I gonna do? I have no place to store all these crops. My, My barns aren't big enough. And then he said, ooh, I got an idea. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger ones and then I'm going to store up all my grain and goods there. And then I'm going to say to myself, you have plenty of good things stored up for years. And so take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. That's the narrative that the man begins to play in his head. But God said to him, You fool. You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who's going to get what you have prepared for yourself? And Jesus adds these words, This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. And again, please note, don't read that dualistically. It is not that storing up things for yourself and saving and being prudent and wise with our resources is wrong. It's this is what's going to happen for people who do that, but don't store up riches in God, are not rich towards God. There's a priority. We invest in the things of God first so that a consumptive, self-centered mentality doesn't kick in. It's one of the massive blessings that is so counterintuitive to tithing. I resisted tithing, giving a tenth of my income for so long uh, just because of essentially greed but also the sense of like, well, I don't need to do that and I don't know, I'm rich towards God in other ways and you have all these rationalizations, God doesn't need my money or I need that money. And yet what you learn is that when you take that step of faith and begin to tithe and you see this chunk of money that for you was yours before and you realize now it's going to its proper place, there is a flourishing and a peace that comes. And I, again, I'm not a prosperity gospel guy. I'm not going to stand up here and say, well, I gave this much away, but then God kind of gave it back. In an X's and O's things, no, that money is out most months. God does bless in certain ways, but I'm out of that money. But only from a worldly perspective. Because God takes it and does some kind of weird spiritual Aikido and blesses me in all kinds of different ways. And one of the blessings is that I am reminded every time I give that life isn't about me, life isn't about consumption. I'm called to give in ways big and small 
into the lives of other people and into the ministry of God's church. And my life grows in meaning and purpose and value. A consumptive lifestyle will only ultimately consume you with emptiness. It's only when we seek participation in God's kingdom and his agenda by contributing to the common good, locally, globally, that genuine joy and deep fulfillment takes hold in our lives, deep satisfaction. And the story teaches me that like this woman, it's only when we bring our treasures to Jesus and offer them to him that we can be assured that our lives won't be a waste. I want to conclude by showing a video. It is not an easy video to watch, not because there's anything particularly uh, challenging in terms of the visuals, but um, the content is, is, is challenging because it wrestles with the question of what does it mean to waste your life and what does a wasted life actually look like? Let's pray. God, help us not to waste our lives. Help us to be able to discern between the voices in our culture that seduce us into self-centeredness, that subtly and not so subtly teach us to prize possessions over people, self-exaltation over Christ-exaltation. God, teach us to differentiate between those voices and your voice. Lead us gently, God, but firmly out of a broad road that leads to waste and set us on a narrow path to an unwasted life, a life that is thick and dense with meaning and glory so that in this world you may be glorified, our neighbors blessed and loved, as we seek to make the name of Jesus mighty and exalted. Help us, God. Forgive us and help us. In your name, amen. I'd like to send you off with a benediction that's taken directly from Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 17. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil, and therefore do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen.